Coming up next, the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-10. How is sin expressed in the Bible? In the minds of people, it often refers to some kind of an action or a thought that uh, violates a law. And we're going to take a look at it on the podcast today. Ancient Roads. This is the podcast of Ancient Roads. Real Israel Talk Radio. Take me home. Join us for the next hour as we explore and discover insights into the ancient Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting Bible's lessons and narratives. Now, here's our host, Avi Ben Mordechai. Welcome back once again to another podcast of Ancient Roads Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and it's nice to have you back here again. We're going to spend a little bit of time here taking a look at the idea of sin but not specifically with that word. We dealt with that on the previous podcast. But on this one, let's take a look now at transgression. Okay? Transgression. Now, the word transgression in English really gives us the idea of transgressing some particular thing, some particular decree, some particular law. That's the idea of a transgression. So, for example, we could turn to passages like First uh, Kings chapter 8, verse 50. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. And similarly, in the Brihadashah or the New Testament, we also have this idea of a transgression. Take a look at a passage like uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 2. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? So the English term transgression or to transgress is derived in its meaning from the Hebrew word pesha, pesha. And I'll spell that for you. It is pei shin ein, pei shin ein, pesha. Now, the word pesha in Hebrew is an idea, it's a concept that defines a breaking of trust, a breaking of trust. That is, someone who has broken trust, someone who has become uh, unfaithful to a particular decree or a particular contract or has become unfaithful to something that was said or something that was promised. That's the idea of Pesha. So when you see this word transgress or transgression, try to put your mind into the, uh, you know, into the focus of the Hebrew scripture word Pesha. 
and you will get a really good understanding of what this word means, how it's being used in the context of the narrative. A breaking of trust, infidelity, unfaithfulness to something that may have been said or promised or spoken of. You know, it's that kind of idea. And we have lots of scripture references that will attest to this concept, this idea. So let's go to 1 Kings 12, verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. The idea is rebellion. Rebellion is transgression. Transgression is rebellion. And you can have other words that are going to have a similar idea in English. Not just rebellion or transgression, but also a breaking of trust, an infidelity, an unfaithfulness to some particular contract or covenant. Something that was said, something that was promised. And when you don't do it, when you violate your word, you are in Pesha. You are in rebellion. Let's take a look at 2 Kings 1.1. The king of Moab rebelled against Israel because the king of Moab had put his people and his nation into a particular covenant, which you can read about in that text. And in that covenant, there was a promise made. There was a covenant made. There was a promise that was presented and the king of Moab did not follow through with his word. In 2 Kings 3, 5, it says it again, but it happened when when Ahab or Achav died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So again, the idea of rebellion. Another one would be 2 Kings 8.20. In his days, Edom, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So this is Edom or Edom revolting or rebelling against Judah's authority. The Hebrew word there is Pesha. Now in Psalm 37:38 in the English Bible it says, "But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off." So in this passage we are shown that wickedness, which is another Hebrew word, it's linked with the action of transgression or to be a transgressor, or if you will, someone who is wicked is also someone who is in rebellion. Psalm 51.15 gives us another similar idea. The psalmist writes, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. 
So here, the idea of a transgressor or one who is acting with no fidelity, one who is unfaithful, one who is in rebellion against a covenant or something that was said or something that was promised, that is a transgressor. He wants to teach that transgressor the ways of Yudhe And then he identifies that as the sinners because they are under an umbrella category of those who miss the mark, miss the goal, as we presented in the last podcast on Chita and Chata sin. So he wants to teach those in rebellion, those that he is calling sinners or those who are missing the mark, and he is telling those people that they should do teshuvah, that is repentance, or convert, turn and go a different direction. Here's an interesting passage in Isaiah 1 verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O land, for Jehovah has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. They have rebelled against me. So what is going on here? Well, in this statement, and they have rebelled against me, is the word pasha, pasha. And pasha is this idea of rebellion, infidelity, unfaithfulness. So you can get the idea. And there's lots of these kinds of references all through Hebrew scripture. So now let's turn to the Brihadasha, the New Testament, and apply the definition of rebellion, infidelity, unfaithfulness to covenant or contract, transgression. Let's apply those ideas to Pasha or Pesha and bring it forward and see how Yeshua and the disciples would have understood that term. In Matthew 15, 3, which I quoted just a bit earlier, it says that Yeshua was uh, being questioned by some of the religious leaders and the uh, elders, the scribes, the Purushim, the Pharisees, and uh, they had a pointed question for him, and they, uh, they asked him quite pointedly, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Well, we know what the idea is here. You could say of this passage, why do your disciples act with infidelity? Why do your disciples act with unfaithfulness? Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, for they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. They are in rebellion against the tradition of the elders. That's exactly what they're saying. And Yeshua turns it back on them in Matthew 15, 3, and he says to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God or Elohim because of your tradition? 
So, again, we could understand this in a very similar way. We could interpret this to say, why do you also act in transgression against the commandment of God? Why do you also act with infidelity against the commandment of God? Why do you also act unfaithful against the commandment of God? Or if you will, why do you rebel against the commandment of God because of your tradition. So you see, this is a very real and important idea that we need to understand in the concept in the light of this very specific second temple period culture. Now let's turn to take a look at some of the words of Paul in Romans 4.13. Paul says this very specific thing concerning transgression. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, we might get very confused by this idea. Paul goes on to say, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. Let's stop right here and look at this. In verse 15, Paul again says, For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Again, let's take a look at Isaiah 1-2, where it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Jehovah has spoken. I have nourished and brought up sons or children. And what does the statement say? And they have rebelled against me. They have committed pasha against me. They have committed peshin ein, that is, acts of infidelity, acts of unfaithfulness, rebellion, these kinds of things. This is a rebellion. So they have the Torah. They have the law in Isaiah's day. So what is going on here? I think Paul clearly knew what was going on. Because when he speaks about transgression in Romans 4, 15, when he says, For where there is no law, there is no transgression. He is, in fact, speaking about the Torah of Moses, but in a very specific context. And this is why we have to be careful about the context. We don't want to confuse the issue. Paul is pointing a finger at all of these ideas and these concepts of rebellion, uh, unfaithfulness, infidelity, because he's linking it to this idea of Pasha. So when he says in Romans 4.13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world, that is, Jehovah speaking to Abraham, it was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. 
In other words, through the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law was not able in any way, shape, or form to give righteousness or to give justness. Remember what Yeshua said quite specifically in John 5.39 to the religious leaders or the elders of that day, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. Or if you want to put it this way, you think you have justification or justness or righteousness because righteousness, justification, justness, and eternal life, they're all synonyms of each other because that's what Hebrew Scripture teaches us, particularly in Psalm 119, where you see these ideas interspersed all the time. For in them, in the Scriptures, Yeshua says, you think that you have eternal life. The scripture is the Torah in Yeshua's mind. It's the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. We know that from Luke chapter 24. This was when Yeshua spoke the following words in Luke 24, 44 and following. He said, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled or filled up to the full, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Verse 45, And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said in verse 46, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So he's calling the scriptures the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings or the Psalms. He's calling the scriptures the Tanakh or Tanakhi, scriptures. He's calling it the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. That's the definition of the scriptures as Yeshua understood it and taught it. So go back to John chapter 5 verse 39 and look at the understanding. You search the scriptures, says Yeshua to the religious leaders. You search the Tanakh. You search the Torah, the prophets, the writings, for in them you think you have eternal life. You think you have justness. You think you have justification. You think you have eternal life. You think you have righteousness. You see? And he says, these are they which testify of me, because he's the word made flesh. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. That's what he's speaking about. You're not willing to come to me that you may have life. That is eternal life. So in Romans 4.13, when Paul says that the word of the promise to Abraham was because of the justness of his faith. 
It was not that he was keeping written Torah instructions perfectly and innocently because the Torah did not even come into view until after Mount Sinai. So it wasn't Abraham that was reading a Torah scroll. It was a promise, a covenant that was given to Abraham. And it was his justness of copy and paste, which is the definition of faith. Go back and listen to the previous podcast on faith. It was a copy-paste function he was doing. He was looking at the coming of the just one, the coming of Messiah, the coming of Messiah Yeshua. And you can see that in John chapter 8, when Yeshua says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he saw it and was glad. That is in the past tense. He saw it in the past tense, and he was glad. Such an incredible statement. So therefore, Paul would then go on to say in Romans 4.14, for if those who are of the law, that is the Torah, those who are doing Torah commandments as though it were going to save them from the wrath of the genetic imprint of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you or I or any of us are trying to earn our, um, our acceptance of Yehovah and to earn our uh, salvation from the wrath of that genetic imprint of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we're trying to do that and to feel as though we have to earn a deservedness, if we have to feel like we deserve to be saved, and that through the keeping of the mitzvot, the commandments, the laws, the tradition, everything, if we're doing it for that purpose, then our copy-paste function, that is our faith, looking at Yeshua, who is our faith. He is our example of copy-paste. If we're earning and deserving and getting our salvation from the keeping of the mitzvot of the Torah, then our copy-paste function is grayed out on our menu. It doesn't work. It is invalid. That is, our faith is voided. Our copy-paste function is voided. That means we're not doing it by looking at Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith, from Hebrews chapter 12. Rather, Paul would say then that the promise was made of no effect. It was worthless to us then. So why did Yehovah give Abraham a promise? Because he saw Abraham, he saw the coming of Messiah. And therefore, in Genesis 15, verse 5, Yehovah speaks to Abraham and he says, 
I am going to credit your copy-paste attitude, your copy-paste functioning, your attitude of looking and accepting what you are looking at in the, in the very far distant future. I am going to credit you with justness. That is, to be declared positionally just or innocent or perfect or blameless. So then Paul says in Romans 4.15, because the law brings about wrath. He's right. He's 100% correct. He says the law, the Torah, will bring about wrath. In which way, you might ask? Well, it's very simple. The Torah demands 100% perfection to keep those laws. And if we don't do those laws, we are going to die. And I don't mean physical death. I mean spiritual death. Now, I'm going to stop here for just a moment, and we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back to discuss more of this as we uh, are learning it here in this podcast. So come back with us in just a moment, and let's continue where we left off, okay? I'm Avi ben Mordecai. to Avi Ben Mordechai and the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-10. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Join us as we continue to explore and discover insights into the ancient Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. So then Paul says in Romans 4:15 because the law brings about wrath he's right he's 100% correct he says the law the torah will bring about wrath in which way you might ask well it's very simple the torah demands 100% perfection to keep those laws. And if we don't do those laws, we are going to die. And I don't mean physical death. I mean spiritual death. Why? Because going back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, when Jehovah spoke to Adam and warned him, and he said, if you eat, from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat from the etzadato virah, the etzadato virah, you are going to die, and then you're going to die. There's two deaths in there from the Hebrew phrase mot tamut. You are going to die, and then you're going to die. That's physical and spiritual. Scripture could never bring about that kind of life. That's why Yeshua said, you're looking at Scripture, and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to have eternal life just by doing the mitzvot, by doing the commandments. 
Folks, I did the commandments. I did rabbinic oral law, and I did written biblical law, and I did it very faithfully for a decade or more. I tried never to miss a beat. I did it perfectly as much as I could and as much as it depended on me. And where did it get me? It made me meshuga. It made me crazy because the Torah was never given for the purpose of bringing me salvation. It was never meant for that. That's why the law brings about wrath, because it says to us, you, you, me, all of us, you have a genetic imprint that has been imprinted into you from Adam's sin, Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden in Gan Eden when he ate from the Etzadato Vera. He inherited a genetic imprint. Yes, I believe a physical and a spiritual genetic imprint. It was embedded into him. He became entangled with that, him and Eve, and they passed it down to us. We inherited that genetic imprint. We are of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when we come into the world. Therefore, the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings are testifying to us that we have wrath hanging over our heads because of that genetic imprint. And then Paul goes on to say in his last statement, for where there is no law, there is no rebellion, no transgression. There is no infidelity. There is no unfaithfulness. If there is no transgression, if there is no pesha, there cannot be any rebellion because the transgression, the rebellion has been proven to us because there was rebellion, there was transgression, there was infidelity back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They put us all under that curse, under that wrath from Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, when again it was said, if you eat of that tree in dying, you will die, moat to moot. You will die two deaths, physical and spiritual. So Yeshua had to come and correct that whole mess. So Paul picks up on that idea and he says, the law brings about wrath. Well, of course it does, because it is proving to us that we're under that genetic imprint. We have it. We came into the world with it. How do you get disentangled? And Paul says, the answer in Romans 4.16, he says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. It might be according to grace. So he gives us the definition of grace. Grace is simply, I'm going to declare you to be positionally perfect, blameless, innocent, and clean. I'm going to positionally declare you to be just, to have justness, 
just like Abraham when he was looking forward into the far distant future of his day, that he would get justness and we in the same way like Abraham would get the same thing. Only in our case, we're looking backward. We're not looking forward. We're looking back at the execution stake and the work of Yeshua the Messiah. Whereas Abraham was looking forward at the work and what Yeshua would accomplish. So we're both looking at the same thing from different timelines. So Paul would say, law is going to bring about wrath. He's got Genesis 2.17 in his mind. He must have it. How else would he understand it that way? And he says, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. He's 100% correct. But we have a declaration of perfection. We have been given that in our lives simply because we decided to believe. We decided to act upon Pesha. We decided to get disentangled from our Pesha going back to the Garden of Eden. We instead decided to exercise Imuna or faith that we would have a working, functional, copy-paste functionality in our soul, looking at Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith, not by anything we earned, not by anything that we could earn or could feel deserved of. Nope, 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 nope. That's not the case. This is given to us. And so therefore, what is the purpose of keeping the Torah, of guarding the Torah, of doing the Torah? It's very simple. We do the Torah because we love him. We love our master, our creator, our redeemer. We love Yehovah and we have a love response to him. He said, if you love me, you will keep guard my Torah, guard my commandments and his commandments are the commandments of the Father. That is the Torah, through the prophets, through the writings. That is the Hebrew Scripture. It's not that the Hebrew Scripture gives you salvation. It's that Yeshua, the Messiah, gives us salvation. And we look to Him, the author and finisher of our faith, and we need the Torah as a roadmap to guide us and point us to understanding how Yeshua, how the Messiah, how our Father in heaven understands and teaches and wants us to learn about his character and his nature. He wants us to know how he governs the kingdom of heaven above. He governs it by the Torah. So the Torah becomes our roadmap. It becomes our image, our picture, our metaphors. So doing the Torah commandments, doing the mitzvot is for a completely different reason. It's not to earn some kind of uh, status of deservedness from Yehovah. No, it's to prove and to show that we do, in fact, believe in him. We love him. We honor him. We are thankful to him. So someone who says, I'm not under the law. I don't have to do the Torah. I don't have to do the law of Moses. 
I'm going to say, well, then how are you going to possibly understand how the kingdom of heaven functions? How are you going to learn about who Yeshua the Messiah is? How will you know any of that? You won't. You'll just be doing a guessing game trying to figure it out, but you won't figure it out. Because all of the understanding, all of the character of Yeshua is woven like a thread into the commandments, into the mitzvot of the Torah of Moses, the law of Moses, the prophets and the writings. We see how he functions. That's what we're looking at. So that's the grace. We are given the status of innocence. Thus, we are no longer in Pesha. We are no longer in rebellion, infidelity, unfaithfulness. We're no longer connected to those things in the inner man. We're no longer connected to those things. We are a new creation in Messiah. You are a new creation in Messiah. I am a new creation in Messiah. We are a new creation in Messiah. We are new on the inside, and we're waiting for the outside, that is, the corruption of the flesh, to die. It must die, it must go into the ground, it must be destroyed, but it will be replaced with a glorified new creation, a glorified new body on the outside as well. And that is coming on the last day resurrection. That's called the first resurrection. You can go read about that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, or Revelation chapter 20. That's the first resurrection. That's where we are glorified. Okay, so whether we are alive or whether we're dead and sleeping in the ground, we're going to get up. All of us who have this faith and belief, who have this copy-paste function working in our lives, we're going to get up again. And when we do, all of that perfection is going to manifest itself. You see how beautiful this is? This is the glory. This is the hope of our glory. That's why this is so important to us. So the Torah is extremely important. So we have rebellion on the outside and perfection on the inside. We have Pesha on the outside and we have perfection. Tom in Hebrew, we have perfection on the inside. And we are battling between the two. Thus, we get Paul's dissertation in Romans chapters 7 and 8. He goes into this whole long thing on this battle between the outside and the inside. It's all true, folks. That's why we have to understand these ideas if we're going to read Paul, if we're going to read the Hebrew Scriptures, if we're going to read Moses, if we're going to hear and read Yeshua, we have to understand what these ideas are. So there you have it. That's the concept of Pesha and the teaching of transgression, or if you will, to transgress. And interestingly, even in modern Hebrew, the term Pesha, it's a word that refers to someone who is doing a criminal act, a criminal, someone who is doing criminal actions. And uh, that's uh, 
Very telling because it shows us we're on the right track with the idea of the biblical concept of Pesha. Now, iniquity. So if you have a Bible open or have something close by, maybe on your smartphone or on your computer or your laptop or just if you have something physical, come along and join us here and we'll go into a study of the term iniquity as we understand it in the English. Let's look at it from Hebrew, okay? Now, the Hebrew term for our English word iniquity is the word avon, avon. Now, I'm giving you the Hebrew consonants, and I'm applying some vowel pointings to that, but still, I want you to be able to hear generally how it sounds. The word is avon. The problem is that for English speakers, when we say the word avon, the ein, the Hebrew letter ein, is a very difficult letter to pronounce, especially for English speakers. Now, the Arabs can do it. The Israelis can do it. But us English speakers, we're having a really hard time with it, okay? So I just say simply Avon, rather than use it in the more guttural sound as it's coming deep from out of the throat. So iniquity in English is uh, deriving from this Hebrew word avon. And avon is ein, vav, nun, or ein, vav, nun, sofit, which is the ending letter uh, for the Hebrew letter nun. Ein, vav, nun. The Hebrew root, or what we call the shoresh, for the term avon, is linked to the three letters ein, vav, he. Ein, vav, he. So we get this word avva, avva. Now, what does this root avva mean with a he in the third letter position of the root, of the verbal root? Ein vav he. This word, this term, refers to something that is bent or twisted, or if you will, to bend something, to twist something, to deviate off of a course or off of something that has been identified, or to distort something that has been identified or specifically decreed. You're getting the ideas of bending, twisting, deviating, distorting. That is the basis, that is the source, that is the very core essence of this idea of ava, ein, vav, Hey, so let's get some ideas as to what this refers to from Hebrew scripture. We're going to turn to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 9. Lamentations 3, 9. For context, let's begin with Lamentations 3, 8. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. Let's look at this word crooked in Lamentations 3.9. Here, the word is ein vav he. 
And with the vowels added, it is in what is called the PL form, the PL form of the Hebrew verb. It is a third person masculine singular root. Ein, Vav, He, Iva. This is very, very important because the idea is that of crookedness. So again, Ein, Vav, He is the root to the word bend, twist, and distort, which I believe has a connection to the Aleph, Vav, two-letter root that means to lust or crave after something. So the lusting and the craving produces in us a nature that is bent, twisted, and distorted. Okay, but now let's just look at something else that's connected with this term for avon, because they're all playing on this very similar idea in the Hebrew. The word, the root, ein vav he. So you see, the concept of avon and ava, even with their different spellings from the basic root word, it's something or someone that bends, twists, distorts, deviates, perverts, or it is someone that is also lusting and seeking after and craving after something. So these ideas go together. So in the Bible, truth is often something that is bent, it's twisted, it's distorted. It's bent, it's twisted, it's distorted by one who turns away from truth and lies against the truth. They lie against the truth. This one is a deviate, and that deviate is one who does avon. That deviate is one who does avon. They're doing the characteristic of bending, twisting, and distorting. But you see, that's what the serpent did to Eve. Did he not? Did he not bend, twist, and distort things in order to get Hava, to get Eve, Adam's wife, to get her completely off track and to completely derail her? Of course he did. He caused her through showing her that she could lust and crave and long for and desire something so strong that it would twist her up. It would bend her. It would distort her to seek after something that she should not have done, which was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thus, she perverted the truth. And so did the serpent. He perverted the truth. So we get the idea that the roots of these words are showing us the Genesis chapter 3 dilemma. And it's further showing us that that entire dilemma has its root or its source in the bent twisted, distorted character and nature of the one that Genesis 3.1 calls Nachash, Nachash, that is the serpent. So anytime we are bending, twisting, distorting, perverting, or craving, 
It always has something to do with these Hebrew roots, both in their two-letter form and their three-letter form, giving us the whole character and nature of the Nachash in Genesis 3.1, who is also called the serpent, the devil, the Satan. It's those kinds of ideas. That's why iniquity is related to this idea of bending and twisting and distorting and perverting and craving and lusting. It's got all those ideas tied, linked to it. Iniquity. Avon. Ein Vav Nun. Now let's take this a step further. Let's look at Isaiah 27.1. Isaiah 27.1. In that day, Yehovah with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, or Leviathan, that twisted serpent. He will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Now the word twisted in this Isaiah passage is not derived from Avon, but the concept is there because the serpent is definitely twisted. That is the whole point. He is twisted. This is the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio with Avi Ben Mordechai. If you wish to stay up to date with coming home news and information, simply register your email address with us on our website, cominghome.co.il. From time to time, we hope to answer questions and comments from our podcast listeners. So if you have a comment or a question, send us an email address to questions at cominghome.co.il. Again, questions at cominghome.co.il. And when you send us a question, please tell us your first name and where you're from. Also, we would appreciate it greatly if you will do your best to keep your questions short and to the point. Questions will be answered in upcoming podcasts from time to time. You've been listening to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, with your host, Avi ben Mordechai. We hope you have discovered fresh insights into the ancient Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. This podcast was brought to you by the Outreach Ministry of Coming Home, www.cominghome.co.il. We're going to come back to all of this on the next podcast, and we'll have a look at iniquity. Iniquity.